The Bickerstaff Partridge Papers by Jonathan Swift Predictions for the year 1708 Wherein the month and day of the month are set down, the persons named, and the great actions and events of next year particularly related, as will come to pass. Written to prevent the people of England from being farther imposed on by vulgar almanac makers. By Isaac Bickerstaff, Yescu. I have long considered the gross abuse of astrology in this kingdom, and upon debating the matter with myself, I could not possibly lay the fault upon the art, but upon those gross impostors, who set up to be the artists. I know several learned men have contended that the whole is a cheat, that it is absurd and ridiculous to imagine the stars can have any influence at all upon human actions, thoughts, or inclinations, and whoever has not bent his studies that way may be excused for thinking so, when he sees in how wretched a manner that noble art is treated by a few mean illiterate traders between us and the stars, who import a yearly stock of nonsense, lies, folly, and impertinence, which they offer to the world as genuine from the planets, though they descend from no greater a height than their own brains. I intend in a short time to publish a large and rational defense of this art, and therefore shall say no more in its justification at present, than that it hath been in all ages defended by many learned men, and among the rest by Socrates himself, whom I look upon as undoubtedly the wisest of uninspired mortals, to which if we add, that those who have condemned this art, though otherwise learned, having been such as either did not apply their studies this way, or at least did not succeed in their applications, their testimony will not be of much weight to its disadvantage, since they are liable to the common objection of condemning what they did not understand. Nor am I at all offended, or think it an injury to the art, when I see the common dealers in it, the students in astrology, the philomaths, and the rest of that tribe, treated by wise men with the utmost scorn and contempt, but rather wonder, when I observe gentlemen in the country, rich enough to serve the nation in Parliament, pouring in Partridge's Almanac, to find out the events of the year at home and abroad, not daring to propose a hunting match, till Gadbury or he have fixed the weather. I will allow either of the two I have mentioned, or any other of the fraternity, to be not only astrologers, but conjurers too, if I do not produce a hundred instances in all their almanacs, to convince any reasonable man that they do not so much as understand common grammar and syntax, that they are not able to spell any word out of the usual road, nor even in their prefaces write common sense or intelligible English. Then for their observations and predictions, they are such as will equally suit any age or country in the world. This month a certain great person will be threatened with death or sickness. This the newspapers will tell them, for there we find at the end of the year that no month passes without the death of some person of note, and it would be hard if it should be otherwise, when there are at least two thousand persons of not in this kingdom, many of them old, and the almanac maker has the liberty of choosing the sickliest season of the year where he may fix his prediction. Again, this month an eminent clergyman will be preferred, of which there may be some hundreds half of them with one foot in the grave. Then, such a planet in such a house shews great machinations, plots and conspiracies, that may in time be brought to light. After which, if we hear of any discovery, the astrologer gets the honor. If not, his prediction still stands good. And at last, God preserve King William from all his open and secret enemies, amen. When if the king should happen to have died, the astrologer plainly foretold it, 
otherwise it passes but for the pious ejaculation of a loyal subject, though it unluckily happened in some of their almanacs, that poor King William was prayed for many months after he was dead, because it fell out that he died about the beginning of the year. To mention no more of their impertinent predictions, what have we to do with their advertisements about pills and drink for the venereal disease? Or their mutual quarrels in verse and prose of Whig and Tory, wherewith the stars have little to do? Having long observed and lamented these, and a hundred other abuses of this art, too tedious to repeat, I resolved to proceed in a new way, which I doubt not will be to the general satisfaction of the kingdom. I can this year produce but a specimen of what I design for the future, having employed most part of my time in adjusting and correcting the calculations I made some years past. Because I would offer nothing to the world of which I am not as fully satisfied, as that I am now alive. For these two last years I have not failed in above one or two particulars, and those of no very great moment. I exactly foretold the miscarriage at Toulon, with all its particulars, and the loss of Admiral Shovel, though I was mistaken as to the day, placing that accident about thirty-six hours sooner than it happened, but upon reviewing my schemes, I quickly found the cause of that error. I likewise foretold the Battle of Almanza to the very day and hour, with the loss on both sides, and the consequences thereof. All which I shewed to some friends many months before they happened, that is, I gave them papers sealed up, to open at such a time, after which they were at liberty to read them, and there they found my predictions true in every article, except one or two, very minute. As for the few following predictions I now offer the world, I forbore to publish them till I had perused the several almanacs for the year we are now entered on. I find them in all the usual strain, and I beg the reader will compare their manner with mine, and here I make bold to tell the world that I laid the whole credit of my art upon the truth of these predictions, and I will be content that Partridge, and the rest of his clan, may hoot me for a cheat and impostor if I fail in any singular particular of moment. I believe— any man who reads this paper will look upon me to be at least a person of as much honesty and understanding as a common maker of almanacs. I do not lurk in the dark. I am not wholly unknown in the world. I have set my name at length to be a mark of infamy to mankind if they shall find I deceive them. In one thing I must desire to be forgiven that I talk more sparingly of home affairs, as it will be imprudence to discover secrets of state, so it would be dangerous to my person but in smaller matters, and that are not of public consequence, I shall be very free, and the truth of my conjectures will as much appear from those as the other. As for the most signal events abroad in France, Flanders, Italy and Spain, I shall make no scruple to predict them in plain terms, some of them are of importance, and I hope I shall seldom mistake the day they will happen. Therefore, I think good to inform the reader, that I all along make use of the old style observed in England, which I desire he will compare with that of the newspapers, at the time they relate the actions I mention. I must add one word more. I know it hath been the opinion of several of the learned, who think well enough of the true art of astrology, that the stars do only incline, and not force the actions or wills of men, and therefore, however I may proceed by right rules, yet I cannot in prudence so confidently assure the events will follow exactly as I predict them. I hope I have maturely considered this objection, which in some cases is of no little weight. For example, a man may, by the influence of an overruling planet, be disposed or inclined to lust, rage, or avarice, 
and yet by the force of reason overcome that bad influence, and this was the case of Socrates. But as the great events of the world usually depend upon numbers of men, it cannot be expected they should all unite to cross their inclinations from pursuing a general design, wherein they unanimously agree. Besides the influence of the stars reaches to many actions and events which are not any way in the power of reason, as sickness, death, and what we commonly call accidents, with many more, needless to repeat. But now it is time to proceed to my predictions, which I have begun to calculate from the time that the sun enters into Aries. And this I take to be properly the beginning of the natural year. I pursue them to the time that he enters Libra, or somewhat more, which is the busy period of the year. The remainder I have not yet adjusted, upon account of several impediments needless here to mention. Besides, I must remind the reader again, that this is but a specimen of what I design in succeeding years to treat more at large, if I may have liberty and encouragement. My first prediction is but a trifle, yet I will mention it, to show how ignorant those sottish pretenders to astrology are in their own concerns. It relates to Partridge the Almanac Maker. I have consulted the stars of his nativity by my own rules, and find he will infallibly die upon the twenty-ninth of March next, about eleven at night, of a raging fever. Therefore I advise him to consider of it, and settle his affairs in time. The month of April will be observable for the death of many great persons. On the fourth will die the Cardinal de Noyles, Archbishop of Paris, on the eleventh the young Prince of Asturias, son to the Duke of Anjou. On the fourteenth a great peer of this realm will die at his country house, on the nineteenth an old layman of great fame for learning, and on the twenty-third an eminent goldsmith in Lombard Street. I could mention others, both at home and abroad, if I did not consider it as of very little use or instruction to the reader or to the world. As to public affairs, on the seventh of this month there will be an insurrection in Dauphine, occasioned by the oppressions of the people, which will not be quieted in some months. On the 15th will be a violent storm on the southeast coast of France, which will destroy many of their ships, and some in the very harbor. The 19th will be famous for the revolt of a whole province or kingdom, excepting one city, by which the affairs of a certain prince in the alliance will take a better face. May, against common conjectures, will be no very busy month in Europe, but very signal for the death of the Dauphin, which will happen on the 7th, after a short fit of sickness and grievous torments with the strangury. He dies less lamented by the court than the kingdom. On the ninth a Moreskel of France will break his leg by a fall from his horse. I have not been able to discover whether he will then die or not. On the eleventh will begin a most important siege, which the eyes of all Europe will be upon. I cannot be more particular, for in relating affairs that so nearly concern the Confederates, and consequently this kingdom, I am forced to confine myself for several reasons very obvious to the reader. On the fifteenth news will arrive of a very surprising event, than which nothing could be more unexpected. On the nineteenth three noble ladies of this kingdom will, against all expectation, prove with child, to the great joy of their husbands. On the twenty-third a famous buffoon of the playhouse will die a ridiculous death, suitable to his vocation. June. This month will be distinguished at home by the utter dispersing of those ridiculous deluded enthusiasts, commonly called the prophets, occasioned chiefly by seeing the time come that many of their prophecies should be fulfilled, and then finding themselves deceived by contrary events. It is indeed to be admired how any deceiver can be so weak, 
to foretell things near at hand, when a very few months must of necessity discover the impostor to all the world, in this point less prudent than common almanac-makers, who are so wise to wonder in generals, and talk dubiously, and leave to the reader the business of interpreting. On the first of this month a French general will be killed by a random shot of a cannonball. On the sixth a fire will break out in the suburbs of Paris, which will destroy above a thousand houses, and seems to be the foreboding of what will happen, to the surprise of all Europe, about the end of the following month. On the tenth a great battle will be fought, which will begin at four of the clock in the afternoon, and last till nine at night with great obstinacy, but no very decisive event. I shall not name the place, for the reasons aforesaid, but the commanders on each left wing will be killed. I see bonfires, and hear the noise of guns for a victory. On the fourteenth there will be a false report of the French king's death. On the twentieth Cardinal Porto Carrero will die of a dysentery, with great suspicion of poison, but the report of his intention to revolt to King Charles will prove false. July. The sixth of this month a certain general will by a glorious action, recover the reputation he lost by former misfortunes. On the twelfth the great commander will die a prisoner in the hands of his enemies. On the fourteenth a shameful discovery will be made of a French Jesuit, giving poison to a great foreign general, and when he is put to the torture, will make wonderful discoveries. In short this will prove a month of great action, if I might have liberty to relate the particulars. At home, the death of an old famous senator will happen on the fifteenth at his country house, worn with age and diseases. But that which will make this month memorable to all posterity is the death of the French king, Louis the fourteenth, after a week's sickness at Marley, which will happen on the twenty-ninth, about six o'clock in the evening. It seems to be an effect of the gout in his stomach, followed by a flux. And in three days after Monsieur Chamillard will follow his master, dying suddenly of an apoplexy. In this month likewise an ambassador will die in London, but I cannot assign the day. August. The affairs of France will seem to suffer no change for a while under the Duke of Burgundy's administration, but the genius that animated the whole machine being gone will be the cause of mighty turns and revolutions in the following year. The new king makes yet little change either in the army or the ministry, but the libels against his grandfather— that fly about his very court, give him uneasiness. I see an express in mighty haste, with joy and wonder in his looks, arriving by break of day on the twenty-sixth of this month, having traveled in three days a prodigious journey by land and sea. In the evening I hear bells and guns, and see the blazing of a thousand bonfires. A young admiral of noble birth does likewise this month gain immortal honor by a great achievement. The affairs of Poland are this month entirely settled. Augustus resigns his pretensions which he had again taken up for some time. Stanislaus is peaceably possessed of the throne, and the king of Sweden declares for the emperor. I cannot omit one particular accident here at home, that near the end of this month much mischief will be done at Bartholomew Fair, by the fall of a booth. September. This month begins with a very surprising fit of frosty weather, which will last near twelve days. The Pope having long languished last month, the swellings in his legs breaking, and the flesh mortifying, will die on the eleventh instant, and in three weeks' time, after a mighty contest, be succeeded by a cardinal of the imperial faction, but native of Tuscany, who is now about sixty-one years old. 
the French army acts now wholly on the defensive, strongly fortified in their trenches, and the young French king sends overtures for a treaty of peace by the Duke of Mantua, which, because it is a matter of state that concerns us here at home, I shall speak no farther of it. I shall add but one prediction more, and that in mystical terms, which shall be included in a verse out of Virgil. Alter erit jam tethys, and altera quae vehat argo. Delectos heroas. Upon the twenty-fifth day of this month, the fulfilling of this prediction will be manifest to every body. This is the farthest I have proceeded in my calculations for the present year. I do not pretend that these are all the great events which will happen in this period, but that those I have set down will infallibly come to pass. It will perhaps still be objected, why I have not spoke more particularly of affairs at home, or of the success of our armies abroad, which I might, and could very largely have done, but those in power have wisely discouraged men from meddling in public concerns, and I was resolved by no means to give the least offense. This I will venture to say, that it will be a glorious campaign for the Allies, wherein the English forces, both by sea and land, will have their full share of honor, that Her Majesty Queen and will continue in health and prosperity, and that no ill accident will arrive to any of the chief ministry. As to the particular events I have mentioned, the readers may judge by the fulfilling of M, whether I am on the level with common astrologers, who, with an old Paul Tricant, and a few pothook for planets, to amuse the vulgar, have, in my opinion, too long been suffered to abuse the world, but an honest physician ought not to be despised, because there are such things as mountebanks. I hope I have some share of reputation, which I would not willingly forfeit for a frolic or humor, and I believe no gentleman, who reads this paper, will look upon it to be of the same cast or mold with the common scribblers that are every day hawked about. My fortune has placed me above the little regard of scribbling for a few pence, which I neither value or want, therefore let no wise men too hastily condemn this essay, intended for a good design, to cultivate and improve an ancient art, long in disgrace, by having fallen into mean and unskillful hands. A little time will determine whether I have deceived others or myself, and I think it is no very unreasonable request, that men would please to suspend their judgments till then. I was once of the opinion with those who despise all predictions from the stars, till the year 1686, a man of quality shewed me, written in his album, that the most learned astronomer, Captain H., assured him, he would never believe anything of the star's influence, if there were not a great revolution in England in the year 1688. Since that time I began to have other thoughts, and after eighteen years' diligent study and application, I think I have no reason to repent of my pains. I shall detain the reader no longer than to let him know that the account I design to give of next year's events shall take in the principal affairs that happen in Europe, and if I be denied the liberty of offering it to my own country, I shall appeal to the learned world by publishing it in Latin and giving order to have it printed in Holland. The accomplishment of the first of Mr. Bickerstaff's predictions. Being an account of the death of Mr. Partridge, the almanac maker, upon the twenty-ninth instant. In a letter to a person of honor written in the year 1708. My lord, in obedience to your lordship's commands, as well as to satisfy my own curiosity, I have for some days past inquired constantly after Partridge the almanac maker, of whom it was foretold in Mr. Bickerstaff's predictions, published about a month ago, 
that he should die on the twenty-ninth instant about eleven at night of a raging fever. I had some sort of knowledge of him when I was employed in the revenue, because he used every year to present me with his almanac, as he did other gentlemen, upon the score of some little gratuity we gave him. I saw him accidentally once or twice about ten days before he died, and observed he began very much to droop and languish, though I hear his friends did not seem to apprehend him in any danger. About two or three days ago he grew ill, and was confined first to his chamber, and in a few hours after to his bed, where Dr. Case and Mrs. Curlius were sent for to visit, and to prescribe to him. Upon this intelligence I sent thrice every day one servant or other to inquire after his health, and yesterday, about four in the afternoon, word was brought me that he was past hopes, upon which, I prevailed with myself to go and see him, partly out of commiseration, and I confess, partly out of curiosity. He knew me very well, seemed surprised at my condescension, and made me compliments upon it as well as he could, in the condition he was. The people about him said he had been for some time delirious, but when I saw him, he had his understanding as well as ever I knew, and spake strong and hearty, without any seeming uneasiness or constraint. After I told him how sorry I was to see him in those melancholy circumstances, and said some other civilities, suitable to the occasion, I desired him to tell me freely and ingeniously whether the predictions Mr. Bickerstaff had published relating to his death had not too much affected and worked on his imagination. He confessed he had often had it in his head, but never with much apprehension, till about a fortnight before, since which time it had the perpetual possession of his mind and thoughts, and he did verily believe was the true natural cause of his present distemper, for, said he, I am thoroughly persuaded, and I think I have very good reasons, that Mr. Bickerstaff spoke altogether by guess, and knew no more what will happen this year than I did myself. I told him his discourse surprised me, and I would be glad he were in a state of health to be able to tell me what reason he had to be convinced of Mr. Bickerstaff's ignorance. He replied, I am a poor ignorant fellow, bred to a mean trade, yet I have sense enough to know that all pretenses of foretelling by astrology are deceits, for this manifest reason, because the wise and the learned, who can only know whether there be any truth in this science, do all unanimously agree to laugh at and despise it, and none but the poor ignorant vulgar give it any credit and that only upon the word of such silly wretches as I and my fellows, who can hardly write or read. I then asked him why he had not calculated his own nativity, to see whether it agreed with Bickerstaff's prediction, at which he shook his head, and said, Oh, sir, this is no time for jesting, but for repenting those fooleries, as I do now from the very bottom of my heart. By what I can gather from you, said I, the observations and predictions you printed, with your almanacs, were mere impositions on the people. He replied, If it were otherwise I should have the less to answer for. We have a common form for all those things, as to foretelling the weather, we never meddle with that, but leave it to the printer, who takes it out of any old almanac, as he thinks fit. The rest was my own invention, to make my almanac sell, having a wife to maintain, and no other way to get my bread, for mending old shoes is a poor livelihood. And, added he, sighing, I wish I may not have done more mischief by my physique than my astrology, though I had some good receipts from my grandmother, and my own compositions were such as I thought could at least do no hurt. I had some other discourse with him, which now I cannot call to mind, 
and I fear I have already tired your lordship. I shall only add one circumstance, that on his deathbed he declared himself a nonconformist, and had a fanatic preacher to be his spiritual guide. After half an hour's conversation I took my leave, being half stifled by the closeness of the room. I imagine he could not hold out long, and therefore withdrew to a little coffee house hard by, leaving a servant at the house with orders to come immediately, and tell me, as near as he could, the minute when Partridge should expire, which was not above two hours after, when, looking upon my watch, I found it to be above five minutes after seven, by which it is clear that Mr. Bickerstaff was mistaken almost four hours in his calculation. In the other circumstances he was exact enough. But whether he has not been the cause of this poor man's death, as well as the predictor, may be very reasonably disputed. However, it must be confessed the matter is odd enough, whether we should endeavor to account for it by chance, or the effect of imagination, for my own part, though I believe no man has less faith in these matters, yet I shall wait with some impatience, and not without some expectation, the fulfilling of Mr. Bickerstaff's second prediction, that the Cardinal de Noyles is to die upon the 4th of April. And if that should be verified as exactly as this of poor Partridge, I must own I should. Be wholly surprised, and at a loss, and should infallibly expect the accomplishment of all the rest. An elegy on the supposed death of Partridge, the almanac maker. An epitaph on Partridge. Partridge's reply. Squire Bickerstaff detected, or the astrological impostor convicted. By John Partridge, student in physique and astrology. It is hard, my dear countrymen of these United Nations, it is very hard that a Britain-born, a Protestant astrologer, a man of revolution principles, an asserter of the liberty and property of the people, should cry out, in vain, for justice against a Frenchman, a papist, an illiterate pretender to science, that would blast my reputation, most inhumanly bury me alive, and defraud my native country of those services, that, in my double capacity, I daily offer to the public. What great provocations I have received, let the impartial reader judge, and how unwillingly, even in my own defense, I now enter the list against falsehood, ignorance and envy. But I am exasperated, at length, to drag out this Cacus from the den of obscurity where he lurks, detect him by the light of those stars he has so impudently traduced. And shew there's not a monster in the skies so pernicious and malevolent to mankind, as an ignorant pretender to physique and astrology. I shall not directly fall on the many gross errors, nor expose the notorious absurdities of this prostituted libeller, till I have let the learned world fairly into the controversy depending, and then leave the unprejudiced to judge of the merits and justice of the cause. It was towards the conclusion of the year 1707, when an impudent pamphlet crept into the world, intituled, Predictions, etc. by Isaac Bickerstaff, E.S.Q., amongst the many arrogant assertions laid down by that lying spirit of divination, he was pleased to pitch on the Cardinal de Noyles and myself, among many other eminent and illustrious persons, that were to die within the compass of the ensuing year, and peremptorily fixes the month, day, and hour of our deaths, this, I think, is sporting. With great men, and public spirits, to the scandal of religion, and reproach of power, and if sovereign princes and astrologers must make diversion for the vulgar, why then farewell, say I, to all governments, ecclesiastical and civil. But I think my better stars, I am alive to confront this false and audacious predictor, 
and to make him rue the hour he ever affronted a man of science and resentment. The cardinal may take what measures he pleases with him. As his excellency is a foreigner and a papist, he has no reason to rely on me for his justification. I shall only assure the world he is alive. But as he was bred to letters, and is master of a pen, let him use it in his own defense. In the meantime I shall present the public with a faithful narrative of the ungenerous treatment and hard usage I have received from the virulent papers and malicious practices of this pretended astrologer. A true and impartial account of the proceedings of Isaac Bickerstaff, E.S.Q., against me. The 28th of March, Anno Diem 1708, being the night this sham prophet had so impudently fixed for my last, which made little impression on myself, but I cannot answer for my whole family, for my wife, with a concern more than usual, prevailed on me to take somewhat to sweat for a cold, and between the hours of eight and nine, to go to bed, the maid, as she was warming my bed, with a curiosity natural to young wenches, runs to the window, and asks of one passing the street, who the bell tolled. For, Dr. Partridge, says he, that famous almanac maker, who died suddenly this evening, the poor girl provoked, told him he wide like a rascal. The other very sedately replied, the sexton had so informed him, and if false, he was to blame for imposing upon a stranger. She asked a second, and a third, as they passed, and every one was in the same tone. Now I don't say these are accomplices to a certain astrological squire, and that one bickerstaff might be sauntering thereabouts, because I will assert nothing here but what I dare attest, and plain matter of fact. My wife at this fell into a violent disorder and I must own I was a little discomposed at the oddness of the accident. In the meantime one knocks at my door, Betty runs down, and opening, finds a sober grave person, who modestly inquires if this was Dr. Partridge's. She taking him for some cautious city patient, that came at that time for privacy, shoes him into the dining room. As soon as I could compose myself, I went to him, and was surprised to find my gentleman mounted on a table with a two-foot rule in his hand, measuring my walls, and taking the dimensions of the room. Pray, sir, says I, not to interrupt you, have you any business with me? Only, sir, replies he, order the girl to bring me a better light, for this is but a very dim one. Sir, says I, my name is Partridge, oh! The doctor's brother, belike, cries he, the staircase, I believe, and these two apartments hung in close mourning, will be sufficient, and only a strip of bays round the other rooms. The doctor must needs die rich, he had great dealings in his way for many years. If he had no family coat, you had as good use the escutcheons of the company, they are as showish, and will look as magnificent as if he was descended from the blood royal. With that I assumed a great air of authority, and demanded who employed him, or how he came there. Why, I was sent, sir, by the company of undertakers, says he, and they were employed by the honest gentleman, who as executor to the good doctor departed, and our rascally porter, I believe, is fallen fast asleep with the black cloth and sconces, or he had been here, and we might have been tacking up by this time. Sir, says I, pray be advised by a friend, and make the best of your speed out of my doors, for I hear my wife's voice, which by the by, is pretty distinguishable, and in that corner of the room stands a good cudgel, which somebody has felt eerie now if that light in her hands, and she know the business you come about, without consulting the stars, I can assure you it will be employed very much to the detriment of your person. 
Sir, cries he, bowing with great civility, I perceive extreme grief for the loss of the doctor disorders you a little at present, but early in the morning I'll wait on you with all necessary materials. Now I mention no Mr. Bickerstaff, nor do I say that a certain stargazing squire has been playing my executor before his time, but I leave the world to judge, and if he puts things and things fairly together, it won't be much wide of the mark. Well, once more I got my doors closed and prepared for bed, in hopes of a little repose after so many ruffling adventures, just as I was putting out my light in order to it, another bounces as hard as he can knock. I open the window, and ask who's there, and what he wants. I am Ned the Sexton, replies he, and come to know whether the doctor left any orders for a funeral sermon, and where he is to be laid, and whether his grave is to be plain or bricked. Why, Sarah, says I, you know me well enough, you know I am not dead, and how dare you affront me in this manner? Alackaday, replies the fellow, why tis in print, and the whole town knows you are dead. Why, there's Mr. White the joiner is but fitting screws to your coffin, he'll be here with it in an instant. He was afraid you would have wanted it before this time. Sirrah, Sirrah, says I, you shall know tomorrow to your cost that I am alive, and alive like to be. Why, tis strange, sir, says he, you should make such a secret of your death to us that are your neighbors. It looks as if you had a design to defraud the church of its dues. And let me tell you, for one that has lived so long by the heavens, that's unhandsomely done. Hist, hist, says another rogue that stood by him. Away, doctor, in your flannel gear as fast as you can, for here's a whole pack of dismals coming to you with their black equipage. And how indecent will it look for you to stand frightening folks at your window, when you should have been in your coffin this three hours? In short, what with undertakers, embalmers, joiners, sextons, and your damned elegy hawkers, upon a late practitioner in physique and astrology, I got not one wink of sleep that night, nor scarce a moment's rest ever since. Now I doubt not but this villainous squire has the impudence to assert that these are entirely strangers to him. He, good man, knows nothing of the matter, and honest Isaac Bickerstaff, I warrant you, is more a man of honor than to be an accomplice with a pack of rascals that walk the streets on nights, and disturb good people in their beds. But he is out, if he thinks the whole world is blind. For there is one John Partridge can smell a knave as far as Grub Street, though he lies in the most. Exalted Garrett, and writes himself squire. But I'll keep my temper, and proceed in the narration. I could not stir out of doors for the space of three months after this, but presently one comes up to me in the street. Mr. Partridge, that coffin you was last buried and I have not been yet paid for. Doctor, cries another dog, how do you think people can live by making of graves for nothing? Next time you die, you may e'en toll out the bell yourself for Ned. A third rogue tips me by the elbow, and wonders how I have the conscience to sneak abroad without paying my funeral expenses. Lord, says one, I durst have swore that was honest Dr. Partridge, my old friend, but poor man, he is gone. I beg your pardon, says another, you look so like my old acquaintance that I used to consult on some private occasions, but alack, he's gone the way of all flesh. Look, 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 cries a third, after a competent space of staring at me, would not one think our neighbor the almanac maker was crept out of his grave to take t'other peep at the stars in this world, and shew how much he is improved in fortune-telling by having taken a journey to the other? Nay, the very reader, of our parish, a good sober, discreet person, has sent two or three times for me to come and be buried decently, 
or send him sufficient reasons to the contrary, if I have been interred in any other parish, to produce my certificate, as the act requires. My poor wife is almost run distracted with being called Widow Partridge, when she knows it's false, and once a term she is cited into the court, to take out letters of administration. But the greatest grievance is, a Paul Triquack, that takes up my calling just under my nose, and in his printed directions with Emby says, he lives in the house of the late ingenious Mr. John Partridge, an eminent practitioner in leather, physique and astrology. But to show how far the wicked spirit of envy, malice and resentment can hurry some men, my nameless old persecutor had provided me a monument at the stonecutters and would have erected it in the parish church, and this piece of notorious and expensive villainy had actually succeeded, had I not used my utmost interest with the vestry, where it was carried at last but by two voices, that I am still alive. That stratagem failing, out comes a long sable elegy, bedecked with hourglasses, mattocks, skulls, spades, and skeletons, with an epitaph as confidently written to abuse me and my profession, as if I had been underground these twenty years. And after such barbarous treatment as this, can the world blame me, when I ask, what is become of the freedom of an Englishman? And where is the liberty and property that my old glorious friend came over to assert? We have drove popery out of the nation, and sent slavery to foreign climes. The arts only remain in bondage, when a man of science and character shall be openly insulted in the midst of the many useful services he is daily paying to the public. Was it ever heard, even in Turkey or Algiers, that a state astrologer was bantered out of his life by an ignorant impostor, or bawled out of the world by a pack of villainous, deep-mouthed hawkers? Though I print almanacs, and publish advertisements, though I produce certificates under the minister's and church warden's hands I am alive, and attest the same on oath at quarter sessions, out comes a full and true relation of the death and interment of John Partridge. Truth is bored down, attestations neglected, the testimony of sober persons despised, and a man is looked upon by his neighbors as if he had been seven years dead, and is buried alive in the midst of his friends and acquaintance. Now can any man of common sense think it consistent with the honor of my profession, and not much beneath the dignity of a philosopher, to stand bawling before his own door, alive? Alive ho! The famous Dr. Partridge. No counterfeit, but all alive, as if I had the twelve celestial monsters of the zodiac to shoe within, or was forced for a livelihood to turn retailer to May and Bartholomew fairs. Therefore, if Her Majesty would but graciously be pleased to think a hardship of this nature worthy her royal consideration, and the next Parliament, in their great wisdom cast but an eye towards the deplorable case of their old Philomath, that annually bestows his poetical good wishes on them, I am sure there is one Isaac Bickerstaff, E.S.Q., would soon be trussed up for his bloody predictions, and putting good subjects in terror of their lives, and that henceforward to murder a man by way of prophecy, and bury him in a printed letter, either to a lord or commoner, shall as legally entitle him to the present possession of Tyburn, as if he robbed on the highway, or cut your throat in bed. I shall demonstrate to the judicious that France and Rome are at the bottom of this horrid conspiracy against me and that culprit aforesaid is a popish emissary, has paid his visits to St. Germains, and is now in the measures of Louis XIV. That in attempting my reputation, there is a general massacre of learning designed in these realms, and through my sides there is a wound given to all the Protestant almanac-makers in the universe. 
Vivat Regina. A vindication of Isaac Bickerstaff, E.S.Q. Against what is objected to him by Mr. Partridge in his almanac for the present year 1709. By the said Isaac Bickerstaff, E.S.Q. Written in the year 1709. Mr. Partridge hath been lately pleased to treat me after a very rough manner, and that which is called, his almanac for the present year. Such usage is very undecent from one gentleman to another, and does not at all contribute to the discovery of truth, which ought to be the great end in all disputes of the learned. To call a man fool and villain, an impudent fellow, only for differing from him in a point mere speculative, is, in my humble opinion, a very improper style for a person of his education. I appeal to the learned world, whether in my last year's predictions I gave him the least provocation for such unworthy treatment. Philosophers have differed in all ages, but the discreetest among them have always differed as became philosophers. Scurrility and passion, in a controversy among scholars, is just so much of nothing to the purpose, and at best, a tacit confession of a weak cause. My concern is not so much for my own reputation, as that of the Republic of Letters, which Mr. Partridge hath endeavored to wound through my sides. If men of public spirit must be superciliously treated for their ingenious attempts, how will true useful knowledge be ever advanced? I wish Mr. Partridge knew the thoughts which foreign universities have conceived of his ungenerous proceedings with me, but I am too tender of his reputation to publish them to the world. That spirit of envy and pride, which blasts so many rising geniuses in our nation, is yet unknown among professors abroad, the necessity of justifying myself will excuse my vanity, when I tell the reader that I have near a hundred honorary letters from several parts of Europe, some as far as Muscovy, in praise of my performance. Besides several others, which, as I have been credibly informed, were opened in the post office and never sent me. Tis true the Inquisition in Portugal was pleased to burn my predictions, and condemn the author and readers of them, but I hope at the same time, it will be considered in how deplorable a state learning lies at present in that kingdom, and with the profoundest veneration for crowned heads, I will presume to add, that it a little concerned his majesty of Portugal. To interpose his authority in behalf of a scholar and a gentleman, the subject of a nation with which he is now in so strict an alliance. But the other kingdoms and states of Europe have treated me with more candor and generosity. If I had leave to print the Latin letters transmitted to me from foreign parts, they would fill a volume, and be a full defense against all that Mr. Partridge, or his accomplices of the Portugal Inquisition, will be able to object, who, by the way, are the only enemies my predictions have ever met with at home or abroad. But I hope I know better what is due to the honor of a learned correspondence in so tender a point. Yet some of those illustrious persons will perhaps excuse me from transcribing a passage or two in my own vindication. The most learned Monsieur Leibniz thus addresses to me his third letter, Illustrissimo Bickerstaffio Astrologi Instauratori, etc. Monsieur Leclerc, quoting my predictions in a treatise he published last year, is pleased to say, Ida nuperim Bickerstaffius magnum illid Anglii fidus. Another great professor writing of me, has these words, Bickerstaffius, nobilis anglis, astrologorum hugus seculi facil princeps. Signor Magliabecchi, the great duke's famous library keeper, spends almost his whole letter in compliments and praises. Tis true, the renowned professor of astronomy at Utrecht seems to differ from me in one article, but it is in a modest manner that becomes a philosopher, 
as pace tanti viri dixerim, and pag.55, he seems to lay the error upon the printer, as indeed it ought, and says, vel force in error typography, cum alioquin bicostaphius verductissimus, etc. If Mr. Partridge had followed this example in the controversy between us, he might have spared me the trouble of justifying myself in so public a manner. I believe few men are readier to own their errors than I, or more thankful to those who will please to inform me of them. But it seems this gentleman, instead of encouraging the progress of his own art, is pleased to look upon all attempts of that kind as an invasion of his province. He has been indeed so wise to make no objection against the truth of my predictions, except in one single point, relating to himself, and to demonstrate how much men are blinded by their own partiality. I do solemnly assure the reader that he is the only person from whom I ever heard that objection offered, which consideration alone, I think, will take off all its weight. With my utmost endeavors, I have not been able to trace above two objections ever made against the truth of my last year's prophecies. The first was of a French man, who was pleased to publish to the world that the Cardinal de Noyles was still alive, notwithstanding the pretended prophecy of Monsieur Bicostaff. But how far a Frenchman, a papist, and an enemy is to be believed in his own case against an English Protestant, who is true to his government, I shall leave to the candid and impartial reader. The other objection is the unhappy occasion of this discourse, and relates to an article in my predictions, which foretold the death of Mr. Partridge, to happen on March 29, 1708. This he is pleased to contradict absolutely in the almanac he has published for the present year, and in that ungentlemanly manner, pardon the expression, as I have above related. In that work he very roundly asserts, that he is not only now alive, but was likewise alive upon that very twenty-ninth of March, when I had foretold he should die. This is the subject of the present controversy between us, which I design to handle with all brevity, perspicuity, and calmness. In this dispute, I am sensible the eyes not only of England, but of all Europe, will be upon us, and the learned in every country will, I doubt not, take part on that side, where they find most appearance of reason and truth. Without entering into criticisms of chronology about the hour of his death, I shall only prove that Mr. Partridge is not alive. And my first argument is thus, above a thousand gentlemen having bought his almanacs for this year, merely to find what he said against me. At every line they read, they would lift up their eyes, and cry out, betwixt rage and laughter. They were sure no man alive ever writ such damned stuff as this. Neither did I ever hear that opinion disputed, so that Mr. Partridge lies under a dilemma, either of disowning his almanac, or allowing himself to be. No man alive. But now if an uninformed carcass walks still about, and is pleased to call itself Partridge, Mr. Bickerstaff does not think himself any way answerable for that. Neither had the said carcass any right to beat the poor boy who happened to pass by it in the street, crying, A full and true account of Dr. Partridge's death, etc. Secondly, Mr. Partridge pretends to tell fortunes, and recover stolen goods, which all the parish says he must do by conversing with the devil and other evil spirits, and no wise man will ever allow he could converse personally with either till after he was dead. Thirdly, I will plainly prove him to be dead out of his own almanac for this year, and from the very passage which he produces to make us think him alive. He there says, He is not only now alive, but was also alive on the very twenty-ninth of March, 
which I foretold he should die on. By this, he declares his opinion, that a man may be alive now, who was not alive a twelve-month ago. And indeed, there lies the sophistry of this argument. He dares not assert, he was alive ever since that twenty-ninth of March, but that he is now alive, and was so on that day, I grant the latter, for he did not die till night, as appears by the printed account of his death, in a letter to a lord, and whether he is since revived I leave the world to judge. This indeed is perfect caviling, and I am ashamed to dwell any longer upon it. Fourthly, I will appeal to Mr. Partridge himself, whether it be probable I could have been so indiscreet, to begin my predictions with the only falsehood that ever was pretended to be in them, and this in an affair at home, where I had so many opportunities to be exact, and must have given such advantages against me to a person of Mr. Partridge's wit and learning, who, if he could possibly have raised one single objection more against the truth of my prophecies, would hardly have spared me. And here I must take occasion to reprove the above-mentioned writer of the relation of Mr. Partridge's death, in a letter to a lord, who was pleased to tax me with a mistake of four whole hours in my calculation of that event. I must confess this censure pronounced with an air of certainty, in a matter that so nearly concerned me, and by a grave judicious author, moved me not a little. But though I was at that time out of town, yet several of my friends, whose curiosity had led them to be exactly informed, for as to my own part, having no doubt at all in the matter, I never once thought of it, assured me, I computed to something under half an hour, which, I speak my private opinion, is an error of no very great magnitude that men should raise a clamor about it. I shall only say, it would not be amiss if that author would henceforth be more tender of other men's reputations as well as his own. It is well there were no more mistakes of that kind, if there had, I presume he would have told me of them with as little ceremony. There is one objection against Mr. Partridge's death, which I have sometimes met with, though indeed very slightly offered, that he still continues to write almanacs. But this is no more than what is common to all that profession. Gadbury, Poor Robin, Dove, Wing, and several others do yearly publish their almanacs, though several of them have been dead since before the revolution. Now the natural reason of this I take to be, that whereas it is the privilege of other authors to live after their deaths, almanac makers are alone excluded, because their dissertations treating only upon the minutes as they pass become useless as those go off. In consideration of which, time, whose registers they are, gives them a lease and reversion, to continue their works after their death. I should not have given the public or myself the trouble of this vindication, if my name had not been made use of by several persons, to whom I never lent it, one of which, a few days ago, was pleased to father on me a new set of predictions. But I think those are things too serious to be trifled with. It grieved me to the heart, when I saw my labors, which had cost me so much thought and watching, bawled about by common hawkers, which I only intended for the weighty consideration of the gravest persons. This prejudiced the world so much at first, that several of my friends had the assurance to ask me whether I were in jest, to which I only answered coldly, that the event would shew. But it is the talent of our age and nation, to turn things of the greatest importance into ridicule. When the end of the year had verified all my predictions, out comes Mr. Partridge's almanac, disputing the point of his death, so that I am employed, like the general who was forced to kill his enemies twice over, whom a necromancer had raised to life. 
if Mr. Partridge has practiced the same experiment upon himself, and be again alive, long may he continue so. That does not in the least contradict my veracity, but I think I have clearly proved, by invincible demonstration, that he died at farthest within half an hour of the time I foretold, and not four hours sooner, as the above-mentioned author, in his letter to a lord, hath maliciously suggested, with design to blast my credit, by charging me with so gross a mistake. A famous prediction of Merlin, the British wizard, written above a thousand years ago, and relating to the year 1709, with explanatory notes. Last year was published a paper of predictions, pretended to be written by one Isaac Bickerstaff, E.S.Q., but the true design of it was to ridicule the art of astrology, and expose its professors as ignorant or impostors. Against this imputation, Dr. Partridge hath vindicated himself in his almanac for that year. For a farther vindication of this famous art, I have thought fit to present the world with the following prophecy. The original is said to be of the famous Merlin, who lived about a thousand years ago, and the following translation is two hundred years old, for it seems to be written near the end of Henry VII's reign. I found it in an old edition of Merlin's Prophecies, imprinted at London by John Hawkins in the year 1530, page 39. I set it down word for word in the old orthography and shall take leave to subjoin a few explanatory notes. Explanatory Notes 7 and 10 This line describes the year when these events shall happen. 7 and 10 makes 17, which I explained 1700, and this number added to 9 makes the year we are now in, for it must be understood of the natural year, which begins the 1st of January. Tamies revere twice, etc. The river Thames, frozen twice in one year so as men to walk on it, is a very signal accident, which perhaps hath not fallen out for several hundred years before, and is the reason why some astrologers have thought that this prophecy could never be fulfilled, because they imagined such a thing would never happen in our climate. From town of Stoff, etc. This is a plain designation of the Duke of Marlborough. One kind of stuff used to fatten land is called Murley, and everybody knows that borough is a name for a town and this way of expression is after the usual dark manner of old astrological predictions. Then shall the fish, etc. by the fish, is understood the dauphin of France, as their king's eldest sons are called, tis here said, he shall lament the loss of the Duke of Burgundy, called the Bas, which is an old English word for hump shoulder, or crook back, as that duke is known to be, and the prophecy seems to mean, that he should be overcome or slain. By the green berries, in the next line, is meant the young Duke of Berry, the Dauphin's third son, who shall not have valor or fortune enough to supply the loss of his eldest brother. Young Simile, etc. by Simile is meant the pretended Prince of Wales, who, if he offers to attempt anything against England, shall miscarry as he did before. Lambert Simile is the name of a young man, noted in our histories for personating the son, as I remember, of Edward IV. And Norway's PRYD, etc. I cannot guess who is meant by Norway's pride, perhaps the reader may, as well as the sense of the two following lines. Rome shall, etc. Reams, or, as the word is now, realms, is the old name for kingdoms, and this is a very plain prediction of our happy union, with the felicities that shall attend it. It is added that old England shall be no more, and yet no man shall be sorry for it. And indeed, properly speaking, England is now no more, for the whole island is one kingdom, under the name of Britain. 
Jerian Shao, etc. This prediction, though somewhat obscure, is wonderfully adapt. Jerian is said to have been a king of Spain, whom Hercules slew. It was a fiction of the poets, that he had three heads, which the author says he shall have again, that is, Spain shall have three kings, which is now wonderfully verified, for besides the king of Portugal, which properly is part of Spain, there are now two rivals for Spain, Charles and Philip. But Charles being descended from the Count of Habsburg, founder of the Austrian family, shall soon make those heads but two, by overturning Philip, and driving him out of Spain. Some of these predictions are already fulfilled, and it is highly probable the rest may be in due time. And I think, I have not forced the words, by my explication, into any other sense than what they will naturally bear. If this be granted, I am sure it must be also allowed, that the author, whoever he were, was a person of extraordinary sagacity, and that astrology brought to such perfection as this, is by no means an art to be despised, whatever Mr. Bickerstaff, or other merry gentlemen are pleased to think. As to the tradition of these lines having been written in the original by Merlin, I confess I lay not much weight upon it, but it is enough to justify their authority, that the book from whence I have transcribed them, was printed one hundred and seventy years ago, as appears by the title page. For the satisfaction of any gentleman, who may be either doubtful of the truth, or curious to be informed, I shall give order to have the very book sent to the printer of this paper, with directions to let anybody see it that pleases, because I believe it is pretty scarce. Dr. John Arbuthnot and Alexander Pope. Annus Mirabilis, or The Wonderful Effects of the Approaching Conjunction of the Planets Jupiter, Mars, and Saturn. By Mart. Scribblerus Philomath. In Nova Fert Animus Mutatus Dicera Formus Corpora. I suppose everybody is sufficiently apprised of, and duly prepared for, the famous conjunction to be celebrated the 29th of this instant December, 1722 foretold by all the sages of antiquity, under the name of the Annus Mirabilis, or the Metamorphostical Conjunction, a word which denotes the mutual transformation of sexes. The effect of that configuration of the celestial bodies, the human males being turned into females, and the human females into males. The Egyptians have represented this great transformation by several significant hieroglyphics, particularly one very remarkable. There are carved upon an obelisk, a barber and a midwife. The barber delivers his razor to the midwife, and she her swaddling clothes to the barber. Accordingly Thales Milesius, who like the rest of his countrymen, borrowed his learning from the Egyptians, after having computed the time of this famous conjunction. Then, says he, shall men and women mutually exchange the pangs of shaving and childbearing. Anaximander modestly describes this metamorphosis in mathematical terms. Then, says he, Shall the negative quantity of the women be turned into positive, there into plus, i.e., their minus into plus? Plato not only speaks of this great change, but describes all the preparations towards it. Long before the bodily transformation, says he, nature shall begin the most difficult part of her work, by changing the ideas and inclinations of the two sexes, men shall turn effeminate, and women manly, wives shall domineer, and husbands obey. Ladies shall ride a horseback, dress like cavaliers. Princes and nobles appear in night rails and petticoats. Men shall squeak upon theaters with female voices. And women corrupt virgins. Lords shall not and cut paper. And even the northern. People, colon. A Greek phrase, 
which for modesty's sake I forbear to translate, which denotes a vice too frequent amongst us. That the ministry foresaw this great change is plain from the Calico Act, whereby it is now become the occupation of women all over England to convert their useless female habits into beds, window curtains, chairs, and joint stools, undressing themselves, as it were, before their transformation. The philosophy of this transformation will not seem surprising to people who search into the bottom of things. Madame Bourignon, a devout French lady, has shown us how man was at first created male and female in one individual, having the faculty of propagation within himself, a circumstance necessary to the state of innocence, wherein a man's happiness was not to depend upon the caprice of another. It was not till after he had made a faux pas that he had his female mate. Many such transformations of individuals have been well attested, particularly one by Montaigne, and another by the late Bishop of Salisbury. From all which it appears that this system of male and female has already undergone and may hereafter suffer several alterations. Every smatterer in anatomy knows that a woman is but an introverted man. A new fusion and flatus will turn the hollow bottom of a bottle into a convexity. But I forbear, for the sake of my modest men-readers, who are in a few days to be virgins. In some subjects, the smallest alterations will do. Some men are sufficiently spread about the hips, and contrived with female softness, that they want only the negative quantity to make them buxom wenches. And there are women who are, as it were, already the abosh of a good sturdy man. If nature could be puzzled, it will be how to bestow the redundant matter of the exuberant bubbies that now appear about town or how to roll out the short, dapper fellows into Wells's women. This great conjunction will begin to operate on Saturday, the twenty-ninth instant. Accordingly, about eight at night, as Senezino shall begin at the opera, as I vedit, he shall be observed to make an unusual motion, upon which the audience will be affected with a red suffusion over their countenance, and because a strong succession of the muscles of the belly is necessary towards performing this great operation, both sexes will be thrown into a profuse involuntary laughter. Then, to use the modest terms of Anaximander, shall negative quantity be turned into positive, etc. Time never beheld, nor will it ever assemble, such a number of untouched virgins within those walls. But alas! Such will be the impatience and curiosity of people to act in their new capacity, that many of them will be complete men and women that very night. To prevent the disorders that may happen upon this occasion is the chief design of this paper. Gentlemen have begun already to make use of this conjunction to compass their filthy purposes. They tell the ladies forsooth that it is only parting with a perishable commodity, hardly of so much value as a calico under petticoat, since, like its mistress, it will be useless in the form it is now in. If the ladies have no regard to the dishonor and immorality of the action, I desire they will consider that nature who never destroys her own productions will exempt big-bellied women till the time of their lying in, so that not to be transformed will be the same as to be pregnant. If they don't think it worth while to defend a fortress that is to be demolished in a few days, let them reflect that it will be a melancholy thing nine months hence to be brought to bed of a bastard, a posthumous bastard as it were, to which the quondam father can be no more than a dry nurse. This wonderful transformation is the instrument of nature to balance matters between the sexes. The cruelty of scornful mistresses shall be returned, the slighted maid shall grow into an imperious gallant, and reward her undoer with a big belly and a bastard.
It is hardly possible to imagine the revolutions that this wonderful phenomenon will occasion over the face of the earth. I long impatiently to see the proceedings of the Parliament of Paris, as to the title of succession to the crown, this being a case not provided for by the Salique law. There will be no preventing disorders amongst friars and monks, for certainly vows of chastity do not bind but under the sex in which they were made. The same will hold good with marriages, though I think it will be a scandal amongst Protestants for husbands and wives to part, since there remains still a possibility to perform the debitus conjugal, by the husband being femme covert. I submit it to the judgment of the gentleman of the long robe, whether this transformation does not discharge all suits of rapes. The Pope must undergo a new groping, but the false prophet Muhammad has contrived matters well for his successors, for as the Grand Signor has now a great many fine women, he will then have as many fine young gentlemen at his devotion. These are surprising scenes, but I beg leave to affirm that the solemn operations of nature are subjects of contemplation, not of ridicule. Therefore I make it my earnest request to the merry fellows and giggling girls about town that they would not put themselves in a high twitter when they go to visit a general lying in of his first child, his officers serving as midwives, nurses and rockers dispensing caudle, or if they behold the reverend prelates dressing the heads and airing the linen at court. I beg they will remember that these offices must be filled with people of the greatest regularity and best characters. For the same reason, I am sorry that a certain prelate, who notwithstanding his confinement, in December 1723, still preserves his healthy, cheerful countenance, cannot come in time to be a nurse at court. I likewise earnestly entreat the maids of honor, then ensigns and captains of the guard, that, at their first setting out, they have some regard to their former station, and do not run wild through all the infamous houses about town, that the present grooms of the bedchamber, then maids of honor, would not eat chalk and lime in their green sickness, and in general, that the men would remember they are become retromingent, and not by inadvertency lift up against walls and posts. Petticoats will not be burdensome to the clergy, but balls and assemblies will be indecent for some time. As for you, coquettes, bods, and chambermaids, the future ministers, plenipotentiaries, and cabinet counselors to the princes of the earth, manage the great intrigues that will be committed to your charge, with your usual secrecy and conduct, and the affairs of your masters will go better than ever. O oh, ye exchange women! Our right worshipful representatives that are to be, be not so griping in the sale of your ware as your predecessors, but consider that the nation, like a spendthrift heir, has run out, be likewise a little more continent in your tongues than you are at present, else the length of debates will spoil your dinners. You housewifely good women, who now preside over the confectionery, henceforth commissioners of the treasury, be so good as to dispense the sugar-plums of the government with a more impartial and frugal hand. Ye prudes and censorious old maids, the hopes of the bench, exert but your usual talent of finding faults, and the laws will be strictly executed. Only I would not have you proceed upon such slender evidences as you have done hitherto. It is from you, eloquent oyster merchants of Billingsgate, just ready to be called to the bar, and coiffed like your sister surgeons, that we expect the shortening the time, and lessening the expenses of lawsuits, for I think you are observed to bring your debates to a short issue, and even custom will restrain you from taking the oyster, and leaving only the shell to your client. O ye physicians, who in the figure of old women are to clean the tripe in the markets, 
scour it as effectually as you have done that of your patients, and the town will fare most deliciously on Saturdays. I cannot but congratulate human nature upon this happy transformation, the only expedient left to restore the liberties and tranquility of mankind. This is so evident that it is almost an affront to common sense to insist upon the proof, if there can be any such stupid creature as to doubt it. I desire he will make but the following obvious reflection. There are in Europe alone, at present, about a million of sturdy fellows, under the denomination of standing forces, with arms in their hands, that those are masters of the lives, liberties and fortunes of all the rest, I believe no body will deny. It is no less true in fact, that reams of paper, and above a square mile of skins of vellum have been employed to no purpose, to settle peace among those sons of violence. Pray, who is he that will say unto them, Go and disband yourselves? But lo! By this transformation it is done at once, and the halcyon days of public tranquility return, for either the military temper nor discipline contain the soft sex for a whole age to come. Bellicae matribus and visa, war odious to mothers, will not grow immediately palatable in their paternal state. Nor will the influence of this transformation be less in family tranquility than it is in national. Great faults will be amended, and frailties forgiven, on both sides. A wife who has been disturbed with late hours, and choked with the hot gout of a sot, will remember her sufferings, and avoid the temptations, and will, for the same reason, indulge her mate in his female capacity in some passions, which she is sensible from experience are natural to the sex. Such as vanity of fine clothes, being admired, etc., and how tenderly must she use her mate under the breeding qualms and labor pains which she hath felt herself? In short, all unreasonable demands upon husbands must cease, because they are already satisfied from natural experience that they are impossible. That the ladies may govern the affairs of the world, and the gentlemen those of their household, better than either of them have hitherto done, is the hearty desire of their most sincere well-wisher, M.S.'